What would you say is the biggest threat to Christianity? Godless governments, the secular academy, the popular media, other religions, atheist critics. Where would you say the gospel is most under attack? It's not hard to point out opponents of the gospel, is it? However, Jude wants to identify an enemy that's often overlooked, unnoticed, hidden. In fact, this might just be the biggest threat to the gospel. So over the next two weeks, we're going to hear from Jude. It's a really short letter, just 25 verses, but it packs a punch. So who exactly is Jude? We'll look again at verse 1. Jude introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, this is really interesting because James is Mary and Joseph's son, the half-brother of Jesus. That makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if I was Jude, I would lead with that detail. You know, I would unashamedly play my brother of Jesus card. After all, that would surely give him some credibility right off the bat. But instead, Jude calls himself Jesus's servant. The Greek word there is doulos, which can also be translated as slave. At the end of verse four, he calls Jesus our only master and Lord. Now, Don't miss how shocking this is. So at the end of our service, Nathaniel Clark is going to be baptized. And before we baptize him, he's going to share his testimony of how he became a Christian. So just imagine for a moment, right, that Nathaniel began his testimony like this. Hey, I'm Nathaniel, the slave of William. My only master, and Lord. Now, I'm sure William would love, would love that, you know, what brother wouldn't, but it'd be weird, right? Because I don't know about you, my siblings are the last people on earth who would call me master and Lord. Nobody considers themselves a slave of their sibling. That's because siblings see the very worst of each other, don't they? They see the temper tantrums, the selfishness, the weaknesses, If anybody knows you're not God, it's your sibling. But when Jude looked at his brother, he saw someone unique, glorious, divine. Now, Jude didn't always see Jesus this way. So in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. Shortly after, their unbelief seemed to be justified as Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. So what could have possibly brought about such a remarkable change? Well, it's because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, and he appeared to hundreds of people, including his brothers, and the only conclusion they could draw is that Jesus, their brother, was no ordinary person. He was God in the flesh. And so that's why Jude opens his letter with such humility. 
He doesn't boast in the privilege of being Jesus' brother. In many ways, Jude was just like every other Christian. He was a slave of Christ. So who is Jude writing to? Well, unlike some other New Testament letters, Jude isn't writing to a specific church. Rather, he seems to be writing to all churches. Specifically, he writes to those who are called there in verse 1. That is, those who've been summoned by God through the gospel. Those who've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Those who've been called into fellowship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Judas writing to believers. These are the people who are beloved in God the Father, he says. We were once spiritual orphans. But God has called us to be part of his family. He's adopted us as his beloved children. So when Jesus was being baptized, do you remember the father speaking these words to Jesus in Matthew 3, 17? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you're trusting in Christ, that same status that Jesus had before the father is now yours. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. This is your truest identity. This is the unshakable reality that undergirds your entire life. You are beloved in God the Father. Finally, Jude is writing to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. This idea of being kept is central to Jude's letter. We're going to think more about this idea next week. However, from the outset, Jude wants to reassure his readers, those who are truly called and loved by God will be kept going until the end. God will not let us go. He didn't bring us into his family only to then cast us out again as spiritual orphans. God will keep us in his love. Christine, just take a moment and notice how all-encompassing your salvation is. God called you, past tense. He loves you, present tense. He will keep you, future tense. That is how secure you are if you are in Christ. But why is Jude writing? Well, we learn the answer to that question in verses three to four. Interestingly, the first thing we're told about this letter is that Jude didn't want to write it. Look at verse three. He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. It seems as though Jude wanted to write a more encouraging letter. Maybe he wanted to unpack the glories of Christ's work. Maybe he wanted to delve deeper into what it means to be called, loved, and kept. However, he found it necessary, he says, to write a different letter. Almost like a shepherd who spots a wolf, Jude senses a pastoral emergency. He says there, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The Greek word there is where we get our word agonize. It means to strive, to battle, to fight with all of our energy. This is a call to arms. Jude is saying, put on your boxing gloves, throw down the gauntlet, It's time to lock horns. Specifically, Jude wants us to fight for the faith. 
The faith there is the body of Christian belief, the truth about salvation in Christ, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, the gospel. That's what Judah's talking about. This faith, verse 3, he says, was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, these words here, they're explosive if you think about it. They tell us that by the time Jude was writing, that the faith had already been fixed and established. The beliefs of Christianity had already been delivered once for all. They were complete. There was, there was nothing more to be added. Everything needed for salvation had, had been once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity wasn't something that evolved over the centuries. We don't need new revelation from God. Everything we need for life and godliness was delivered once and for all during the time of the apostles. And then it was written down for us. And that's why we have the Bible at the center of our church life. We, we don't believe anything new. We don't feel like we need to be novel in order to be relevant. No, here is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this faith, Jude says, is under attack. Look at verse four. He says there, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I still remember the first TV series I ever binge watched. 24 with Jack Bauer. You know, if you've never seen it, Jack Bauer is a counter-terrorism agent. And every series involves a twist where there's an intruder. There's a terrorist who creeps in unnoticed, who infiltrates the counter-terrorism unit and wreaks havoc from within. Well, Judah's saying that the same thing has happened in the church. He says that there are intruders wreaking havoc from within. Jude calls them certain people there in verse 4. Throughout the letter, he'll refer to these people, verse 8. These people, verse 10. These, verse 12. These, verse 14. These, verse 16. In fact, he never calls them out by name. What Judah's going to do he, is he's going to describe what these people are like and he's just going to assume that his readers will be able to identify them. The faith is under attack. Yet notice where Jude's concerned is. He's, he's not primarily concerned about the, the godless government or secular philosophers or atheist critics or competing religions. The alarm bells are ringing because of the threat from within. Intruders have crept in unnoticed, he says. The Greek, the Greek verb there implies that, that these people have hidden their true character and motives. The biggest threat facing the church is not external, it's internal. And Jude isn't the only New Testament author who points this out, by the way. The Apostle Paul, Peter, and John frequently warn against heretics within the church. In fact, Jesus himself warned about wolves in sheep's clothing, weeds amongst the wheat. 
the most insidious opponents of the gospel have always come from within the church. But how are these people attacking the faith? Well, we might expect you to say, well, these people, they're denying the resurrection. These people are saying that you need to earn your salvation. These people are saying that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. But interestingly, the problem isn't heretical doctrine. The problem is heretical behavior. Look again at verse 4. Jude calls them ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're taking God's grace and they're using it as a license to sin. The word sensuality there often has sexual connotations. Their denial of Jesus is a practical denial. We might put it like this, with their mouths they proclaim Jesus as savior, but with their lives they deny him as Lord. It's likely that some of these people have even risen to leadership positions in the church. So in verse 12, Jude refers to them as shepherds feeding themselves. Therefore, it seems like they were leading people in their folly. However, Jude reminds us that these people haven't surprised God. They haven't slipped by his notice. In fact, verse 4, he says they were long ago designated for this condemnation. God has already predicted their coming and appointed their destruction. In verses 5 to 16, Jude is going to further describe the ungodliness of these intruders. And then he's going to document the certain judgments that awaits them. Now, if you look at verse 5 to 16, at first glance, they seem very complicated, don't they? However, when we step back, I think there's a simple structure to this passage uh, we should have a chart on the screen for you. There we go. Hopefully this is helpful to see the pattern Jude uses. He uses this pattern which he repeats twice. One, once he repeats, he, he, he gives this pattern in verses 5 to 10, and then he repeats it again in verses 11 to 16. The pattern is, is this. Jude is going to list three Old Testament examples. And each of these examples involves an occasion of ungodliness, followed by a resulting judgment. And then he's going to link those examples to the ungodly people who've crept into the church. And then he's going to reinforce his point using an extra biblical piece of literature. And lastly, he's then going to link that extra biblical piece of literature to the ungodly people again. And what Judah's doing is this. He's, he's using the past to warn us about the future, to make us contend for the faith in the present. Okay, I'll say that again. He's using the past to warn us about the future, to make us contend for the faith in the present. Okay, so if you look in verse five, he begins his blast from the past by saying this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The first Old Testament example is the unbelieving Israelites. So despite being rescued from slavery to Egypt, they refused to trust the Lord. 
Therefore, instead of entering the promised land, they were destroyed. Basically, for a time, they looked like God's people. However, their unbelieving hearts proved otherwise. And notice who it was who saved his people. Did you catch that? It was Jesus. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because the Old Testament tells us that it was the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God, who rescued his people from Egypt. But the New Testament pulls back the curtain and we see that Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God, in the flesh. You know, sometimes people have this wrong understanding of the Bible. You know, there's, a, there's the, the God of the Old Testament. He, he's kind of grumpy and he likes to punish people. And then there's the God of the New Testament, Jesus. And he's, he likes to love on people. You know, and so people have this faulty understanding of the Bible that we basically have two gods of two different characters. But no, Jude is blowing that thinking out of the water. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the God who saved his people and he's the God who destroyed his enemies. That's why when we preach the Old Testament, every sermon's about Jesus. The second Old Testament is example is found in verse six. Jude mentions the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. It's, it's difficult to know exactly what events Jude is referring to here. Some scholars think he's referring to the original fall of angels. Others think it's the, that bizarre event in Genesis chapter six. Whatever the answer is, the nature of their sin is clear. They've rebelled against God's authority. Therefore, he says, they've been kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The third example there is in verse seven. Jude recalls God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. He says that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The Greek term he uses there refers to homosexual practice. Basically, the sin of these cities was rebelling against God's natural order for sex. Therefore, he says, God made an example of them. They underwent a punishment of eternal fire. Now, if you look at verse 8, we see how Jude links the ungodly of the past with the ungodly of the present. Yet, he says, in like manner, these people also... Judas convinced that the same unbelieving, authority-rejecting, lustful ungodliness has infiltrated the church. He mentions a few characteristics of these people there. They rely on their dreams, he says. They're guided not by God's objective word, but by their subjective experience. To put it in modern terms, we might say this, they follow their heart. They choose, to be, they choose to be true to themselves. This leads, to, leads them to defile the flesh and indulge in sexual immorality. In order to justify their sin, they reject authority, he says, specifically the authority of God's word. And finally, he says, they blaspheme the glorious ones. It's difficult to know exactly what Jude means here. Most scholars think that he's that they've been speaking irreverently about fallen angels. 
You know, maybe they had a cavalier attitude toward demonic forces. It's not difficult to imagine a charismatic leader with an over-realized eschatology taunting the devil, speaking flippantly about demons, showing off how victorious he is in Christ. That may explain Jude's words in, verses, in verse 9 there. Look at verse 9. He says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. That's obviously really clear and requires no further up explanation, so we'll move on. I mean, seriously, what? Well, Jude recounts a story there about the archangel Michael disputing with Satan over Moses' body. And if you're thinking, hmm, I don't remember learning about that in Sunday school. That's because it's not in the Bible. This story was taken from a piece of Jewish literature called The Assumption of Moses. It was a story Jude's readers would have likely been familiar with. So Jude uses it to illustrate his point and this might seem a little bit weird to us. However, it's not that weird when you think about it. It's kind of like me quoting from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters or John Milton's Paradise Lost. The story goes like this. When Moses died, there was some sort of legal dispute over his body. Presumably, the archangel Michael wanted to give Moses an honorable burial. However, Satan wanted to deprive him of that right as the accuser, maybe he tried to establish Moses' guilt as a sinner. He wanted Moses for himself. Whatever the specifics might be, we might expect Michael to condemn the devil. However, rather than putting himself in God's place and pronouncing a judgment on Satan, he simply says, the Lord rebuke you. He leaves it up to God to judge. And the point here is that even the archangel Michael knows his place. Even he doesn't speak irreverently about fallen angels. Whether this story is true or not doesn't actually matter. Jude simply uses it as an illustration. And then in verse 10, he links this story back to the ungodly people. He says this, but these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These people are ignorant about Jesus, about angels, about sin, about God's grace. The only thing they understand, he says, is their bodily instincts. They're like unreasoning animals. They follow their subjective feelings and desires, but ultimately, he says, they'll be destroyed. See how Judas using the past to warn us about the future? And he's going to repeat that same pattern now in verses 11 to 16. So look at verse 11. There he gives us three more Old Testament examples. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Cain, Balaam, and Korah are all examples of ungodly people who were judged by God. Interestingly, if you read the Old Testament, you'll read about Cain first, then Korah, and then Balaam. However, Jude switches the order a little bit here. 
The question is why? Well, let's start with Cain. In Genesis 4, God warned Cain that sin was crouching at his door. However, Cain ignored God's word. He murdered his brother Abel. And as a result, God punished them. He sent him out to be a wanderer on the earth. Well, what about Balaam? Balaam was a lover of money. He was a false prophet for hire. And he influenced Moabite women to sleep with Israelite men. And as a result, not only was Balaam judged, but a large number of people were judged along with him. And what about Korah? Well, we read about Korah earlier in the service, didn't we? He led a rebellion against God's prophet Moses. And nearly 15,000 people followed him. And they all perished with him in judgment. In other words, there's this progressive danger in verse 11. With each example, more people experienced judgment for their ungodliness. Can you see what Judah's doing? He's saying that ungodly people in the church are dangerous, not only because they'll be destroyed, but because they'll drag along people into judgment with them. In verses 12 to 13, Jude applies all this to the intruders, and he gives us a flurry of word pictures. He says that these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. These godless people are participating in something Jude calls the love feasts. They would have basically been early Christian meetings that involved the Lord's Supper. However, they feel no pang of conscience about their hypocrisy. And like hidden reefs which destroyed unsuspecting ships, they're incredibly dangerous. Jude calls them shepherds feeding themselves. They're like the bad shepherds of Ezekiel 34, living for themselves at the expense of God's flock. He calls them their waterless clouds swept along by winds. Now, honestly, as an Englishman, that sounds like a compliment because I grew up in a giant cold shower. However, in the Near East, where it's always hot, clouds are a blessing. They water the crops and bring a harvest. Clouds equals life. These people are like waterless clouds. They promise rain, but don't deliver. They promise life, but bring only death. He says they're, they're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They bring death because they're spiritually dead themselves. They talk the talk, the talk but their life bears no lasting fruit. He says they're, they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. The sea in the Bible is a metaphor for chaos and danger. Not only do these people lack good fruit, but they abound in evil fruit. Have you ever been to the beach and then there's that gross foam along the shore? That's a picture of the shameful mess that these people leave in their wake. Finally, he says they're, they're like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The stars were like the equivalent of GPS for ancient people. They were like Google Maps. 
They would use them to navigate where they were headed. Jude says that ungodly people only lead others astray to the utter darkness of hell. Selfish, useless, fruitless, lifeless, dangerous, avoid them. This brings us to Jude's second extra-biblical reference in verses 14 to 15. He quotes from the book of Enoch, which was a well-known piece of Jewish literature at the time. And the quote highlights God's judgment against ungodliness. Four times in just one sentence, the idea of ungodliness appears. Jude lists some examples of ungodliness in verse 16. Again, linking it back to the ungodly people of his day. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're perpetually discontent, complaining about their circumstances, murmuring against God and his providence. Like the grumbling Israelites, they long to return to Egypt, to live under slavery to sin. He says they're, they're loud-mouthed boasters, loud-mouthed loud bo boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They like to talk. They like the spotlight. They're narcissistic. And they have their favorites too. You know, they're good at turning church into a game of politics. Whether it's gaining wealth, power, or influence, they know how to manipulate people. These are the kinds of people who creep into churches. So what are we meant to take from all this? Well, let me suggest two applications for us. First application is this. We need to recognize the threat of ungodliness. We need to recognize the threat of ungodliness. Ungodly people creep into churches and they sometimes even end up in leadership positions. How does this happen? Well, sometimes it's because they're gifted. Maybe they're a great preacher or a dynamic leader and they appear to be doing good ministry. And this causes people to overlook their character faults. We tell ourselves, okay, I know they have an anger problem. I know they're a bit controlling. I know they act inappropriately. I know they don't respond well to rebuke. But look at all the good they're doing. Sometimes ungodly people remain hidden because they're impressive. Maybe they have a great grasp of theology. Maybe they have a charismatic personality. Maybe they're smart, rich, influential. Maybe they're just really likable. And so their impressiveness blinds people to their true character. Sometimes ungodly people are just really good at hiding. They know how to keep up appearances. They know how to act holy in public. They know the right words to say in the right tone to the right people. They know how to keep others at a distance. They even know how to keep their spouse and kids quiet about who they truly are in the home. That's exactly why Jude is writing this letter. Throughout church history, the most insidious opposition to the gospel has come from within churches. Now listen, Jude isn't writing this letter to make us paranoid, okay? So if you suddenly feel suspicious about the person next to you, you can just relax for a second. 
You know, in all the cultural and political division we're experiencing, I think some Christians have become over-suspicious of one, one another. So I don't think we should do that, but I think Jude does want us to be alert because we can't contend for the faith if we don't know that we're in a battle. So how do we fight against ungodliness in the church? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that we have church membership. We only admit people to membership who we believe are truly Christians, not just in what they say, but in also how they live. And if people are living in unrepentant sin, if they're living a double life, if they're being hypocrites, we need to speak the truth to them in love, to gently, lovingly rebuke them. But if they don't stop, we need to lovingly discipline them out of the church. But having church membership isn't enough, is it? We actually need to know one another because we can only hide our true character for so long and ungodliness thrives in secrecy. Therefore, we need to let others into our lives. If we want to contend for the faith, we need to be committed to transparency, to live in the light together. This also means appointing elders is a serious business. So if all we're looking for is theological brilliance, an engaging personality or ministerial gifts, then we're asking for trouble. It's vital that we appoint people to leaders who are godly. If you look at the qualifications for elders in the New Testament, apart from the ability to teach, they're all about godly character. That's one of the reasons we have a rigorous elder process at our church. We've, we've learned that we need to spend a long time assessing a person's character. So one of the things that we do is we have a godly woman in the church interview the wife of any prospective elder to make sure that the person they are in public is the same person they are in private. We also wanna make sure that every one of our elders is known by multiple people in the church. There are people who know what we're like behind closed doors. And we seek to be transparent about our sin struggles and weaknesses. And we want you to keep us accountable. And we covet your prayers that we would fight sin and pursue the Lord Jesus. Finally, we also need to be careful about who we're following. Who are we listening to? What are we reading? What people are shaping the way we think and act? I think in the age of the internet, this is a huge issue because people can actually creep into our church without being physically present here with us. We need to constantly ask ourselves, are those I'm, I'm being influenced by bearing good fruit in my life? Are they making me more godly? Are they helping me to love Jesus and trust the Bible more? Are they helping me to hate my sin and not just other people's sin? Or are they just making me more fearful, isolated, angry, discontent, suspicious, argumentative, tribal, divisive, or worldly? You know, in some ways, it's great being able to learn from people across the world, isn't it? Particularly other Bible teachers. However, we need to be careful because we can find ourselves being pastored by people that we don't even know. The primary means of our discipleship should never be celebrity pastors, 
best-selling authors, social influencers, online blogs, or talking heads. No, it should be the local church because the local church is where we live out the gospel together. So that's the first thing. We need to recognize the threat of ungodliness. Secondly, we need to remember the outcome of ungodliness. We need to remember the outcome of ungodliness. Look again at verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, we're prone to forget, aren't we? So we need to be constantly reminded about what we already know. Jude keeps putting us back to the Old Testament and saying, look what happens to the ungodly. They're destroyed. Not only that, but they drag along others with them. And we're meant to learn from their example. When we find ungodliness creeping into our lives, grumbling, greed, rebelling against authority, sexual sin, following our desires instead of God's word, using God's grace as an excuse to sin, we need to remember the ungodly will be destroyed. I think young people particularly need this reminder. So if you're, if you're one of the children here, if you're one of the youth, the world does not encourage you to be godly. It'll tell you to live your truth, to be your own boss, to trust your inner voice, to follow your feelings, to do whatever you want with your body. And you know what? You'll even find churches and preachers who'll reinforce those messages. They'll tell you that God just wants you to be happy. They'll teach you that you can have Jesus and your sin. They'll tell you that the Bible's sexual ethics are no longer relevant. And those messages are gonna sound attractive to you. However, you need to remember the ungodly will be destroyed. Remember Jude, he's using the past to warn us about the future so that we might contend for the faith in the present. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian? I mean, this has probably been a difficult sermon to hear because Jude is very clear about what will happen to the ungodly. And I think there are two bad ways you could respond to Jude. Firstly, you could just ignore him. You could conclude that God doesn't really care about your sin. That God won't really punish the ungodly. Secondly, you could try to be godly. You could try to become more religious. You could try to obey God's word, clean up your act, become a better person. However, both of these responses end in God's judgment because neither response deals with the problem of your sin. So what should you do? You should do this, turn to Christ, recognize Jesus as your savior and your Lord because here's the thing, Jesus lived a perfect life of godliness. However, he died in your place. He was punished for our ungodliness he was destroyed for our unbelief. He was condemned for our guilt. He was perished for our rebellion. And then he rose from the grave in victory and he, and he conquered sin and death. And now he offers salvation to anyone who would turn to him in simple faith. So if you turn to Christ, he'll save you from the penalty of sin. 
You'll no longer have to fear God's judgment because all your judgments will be taken care of on the cross. But Jesus will also save you from the power of sin. You'll no longer have to live in slavery to ungodliness. And this is all a gift. There's nothing you need to contribute. You just need to receive Jesus as your savior and your Lord. So let me urge you to do that this morning if you've never done it. And if you are a Christian this morning, then let me ask you as we close, where has ungodliness crept into your life? Are there ways you're currently perverting the grace of God? Using God's grace as a license for sin? Are you cultivating a rebellious spirit? Are you indulging in sexual sin? Are you ignoring God's word? Are you worshiping money? Are you endlessly grumbling? Are you following your own sinful desires? Do you show partiality to certain types of people in order to gain advantage? Are you divisive? When you look at your life, are there ways that you are denying Jesus as your master and Lord? If so, let Jude remind you, although you once fully knew it, that God will destroy the ungodly. But here's the good news. That's not who you are anymore. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Christian, remember what Jude said? You've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Why would you still live in the dark? You've been called into fellowship with God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you fellowship with sin? Christian, you're beloved in God the Father. He's adopted you as his child. Don't you want to imitate and please your heavenly father? Christian, you're being kept for Jesus Christ. We'll think more about that next week. But look, listen, whatever sin is promising you, it can't be better than that. So church, let us look to the past and be warned about the future so that we might contend for the faith in the present. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you that in Christ we're your beloved children and that you promised to keep your people until the end. Would you use these warnings in Jude as a means to that end, Lord? Would we recognize the threat of ungodliness, not just out there, but in here, in our own hearts, in our own midst? And we pray that we would remember that you will destroy the ungodly. We thank you, Lord, that for those in Christ, our ungodliness has been crucified on the cross. And so we've been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. And so we pray, Lord, that the gospel would motivate us to leave here, Lord, with hearts loving you and on alert, ready to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Amen.